in the video that Sarah Kirk submitted for the Oklahoma School Counselor of the Year, an honor she subsequently won, she quoted a report stating that if students have just one person who loves and believes in them, their outcomes are far greater. Well, Sarah said, I want to go beyond that. I want to be the one person who is absolutely crazy about them. I want them to know that this is more than a job for me, that they truly have my heart. But how does Sarah do that when students can no longer come to Kendall Whittier Elementary School in Tulsa, Oklahoma? That's what NPR's Morning Edition wanted to know for its April 20th story titled, Closed Schools Are Creating More Trauma for Students. Because Sarah is a 2019 Fund for Teachers Fellow, we were able to catch up with her to hear more and learn how all of us can help students experiencing trauma. I saw the actual article in which you were quoted on Morning Edition on Monday, but then today they shared it out on their social media platforms. How did that happen? How Were you surprised <laughs> when NPR calls you up? And That was a pretty exciting one. I've heard from quite a few people lately. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the American School Counselor Association, and I was a finalist for School Counselor of the Year in 2019. So because of those two roles, ASCA uses me quite a bit. Um, I'm one of few elementary school counselors um, in those roles. So anytime someone wants to talk to someone with the, that works with the younger students, ASCA usually calls on me, which I'm really happy to. I'm very passionate about spreading the word of school counseling and what school counselors do, not only during this time, but al- always. I read that sometimes it's hard to convince school administration the value of counseling. How have you seen your validity skyrocket during this pandemic, both with your administrators and maybe with parents of of your students as well? Sure. I've said that that has been, I think, a good silver lining of it all. Um, But I will say there's been a, a tough side of that as well, because on the front end of COVID-19 shutdowns, Schools didn't know how to utilize school counselors because, quite honestly, so many administrators don't know what their school counselors do on a day-to-day basis during a normal week. So for them to understand how to then put them into this role um, virtually was hard for administrators. I heard from school counselors from all over that weren't being used or being used incorrectly. And so while school counselors are constantly advocating for that role, I think that this really put a light on that. And then when school counselors were able to offer up ways they could help that were so valuable, I mean, really, from my perspective, what had to happen first before any learning platforms could get set up, um, really making sure our students were safe, making sure that they were being cared for and all of that. I always, I keep saying Maslow's hierarchy of needs is more prevalent, more, you know, just relevant than ever because we can't be teaching our kids if they're hungry and if they're unsafe and all those things. We've always known that, but fortunately we've been able to bring them into our homes as a school and create that safety and create a place that they can learn. We feed them, we do all those things. Now staying in their homes, we don't know that safety is there. We don't know that food is secure. So meeting those needs has had to be priority before any virtual learning can occur. So how do you go about doing that? How is that? What does that look like for you? Because it's a school of how many students are you in? 
I'm at a school of 900 students this year. How do you so. ever start being sure that children are safe and fed and well cared for? It's really difficult. We've really spent up until this point, three to four weeks of this shutdown, just contacting families any way we can. And um, luckily we have an amazing staff that's an all hands on deck sort of staff. So it doesn't mean that I'm contacting all 900 families, but I am contacting 20, 30, or 40 each day for sure. And that looks like emails, phone calls, text messages, whatever you can do to get a hold of them to start offering some of those resources. Luckily, we're in a, a community that has a lot of resources. We're in a very high need community, but we can at least plug them in. So I say it started as making sure the students were safe, had food, that sort of thing. Well, then once that piece was sort of in place, and um, we had food available, we had these different resources set up, then the, you know, the online learning thing started coming about. Well, our students didn't have internet or access to technology. So then we had to get those resources provided for 900 students. And now really, I think I would say this week is probably the first week we've really been able to implement any sort of true distance learning. So it's hard. And I think that what the NPR article really highlighted, which is he highlighted it because it's what we all had to say is that we're doing our best and we are making a lot of contacts, but it's tough. It would be untrue to say that I know all of my kids are safe or all of my kids are fed or all of my kids are cared for because that's not the reality. Being at the elementary age, they talked about this too, but I, I don't have the ability to just call up my students. I have quite a few that will text me or message me from mom or dad's phone, and we can, we can communicate directly with students there. But for the most part, those 20, 30, 40 contacts I'm making are with caregivers. You know, they're the parents, which is good, but not if those are the ones inflicting harm on our kids. Right. What are you hearing from the parents with whom you're speaking about the needs that they're seeing in their children? Because you said, I, th I think it was, I don't know if it was in this article or another, that you have a very diverse range of socioeconomic students. Is there a commonality in what people I think, think that's from my Fund for Teachers application that you got that. And that I was at a previous school. So I was okay. at a school um, in a suburban city in Oklahoma for seven years. Okay. And then this year, I'm at a new school in an urban school district. So we really don't have that diversity. Uh, I still do talk with a lot of those parents and it is interesting because I'm very close with them and a lot of them have asked for supports and resources that are very different. So I can kind of imagine what it would be like being in that school because some parents are very worried about not letting their kids fall behind academically. They want, you know, everything they can get their hands on they want you know an all-day school setting whereas the students that i'm working with now the vast majority like i said it's just making sure those basic needs are being met the school i work at now is a hundred percent free and reduced lunch a population that's definitely impacted by something like this financially because it's expensive to feed two, three, four kids, two meals a day, five days a week. And what you're hearing from the parents, like, are they, do they start with how they're doing or how they're coping or what do you hear when um, you're freaking out? When I talk with families, I think the general consensus of what I hear is we're doing okay. They are finding a way to be okay. 
Um, but what okay means to you and me is probably quite different than what okay means to these families. So we are passing out 300-ish lunches every day. Um, we're feeding a lot of kids still. Of all the contacts I make a day, I bet two or three say they're food insecure. So we find ways to to fill those needs. Luckily, we have great community partners that will buy groceries, things like that. So we've um, been able to plug them in there. All of our food pantries are working way over time to meet the needs. So luckily, when we do have those parents that say, you know, I need this or I need that, we're really able to provide. The other thing I'm overall hearing is overwhelmed. Families are just overwhelmed. The virtual learning setting is hard for any family. I'm hearing this from my suburban middle class families too that I still am in contact with. It's a lot. In my school district, again, being aware of the number of kids so many of our families have, the day is scheduled. So they're only in a virtual setting like this for 30 minutes a day actually with their class because we have to make sure the computer can get to the other siblings. We passed out um, computers, but we were only able to do one per family because that's all we had. What are you hearing from your students? What are they saying to you when you can talk with them? Mixed. Overall, they're doing okay. Kids are resilient. Luckily, kids that come from tough situations are really resilient, but they miss school. I mean, that's the overwhelming thing I hear. I miss you. I miss my teacher. I miss school. You know, they, it's their safe place and it's the bright spot for kids, you know, that, that often come from tougher backgrounds. It's what they look forward to. They're not doing the fun science experiments at home that you see all over Facebook or going on the scavenger hunts or chalking up their front lawn. They're not doing that. And so they just miss getting to be in their normal environment. But what do you say to them? One of my big things has just been making sure that we normalize the feelings that they're feeling and that we recognize them and that we say that they should feel sad. You know, I think it's important for them to know that it is sad. And if they're scared, it is scary. You know, there is a lot going on. Surprisingly, I haven't heard much fear or or worry. I thought with elementary age kids wrapping their head around something like this would be really overwhelming, but I haven't heard that, which is good. Um, At least there's some resiliency there, maybe just not grasping it. So that's been good. But yeah, I think just I'm reassuring them that those feelings are normal. Yeah. But I do feel a sense of the kids really like getting to see their teachers and their classmates. I just pop into everyone's Zoom meeting every morning of the classes and say hi, and they're just thrilled to see faces. So that's been a really, a really good bright spot for sure. Can you talk about the YouTube channel that you've set up? And it's just so <laughs> cheerful. And, <laughs> and when your 80-pound dog crew comes in and, and stands in front of the camera, and how do, your, how do students access those? And, and I assume other students anywhere could access those. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And I did that purposefully, um, mainly because I was at my previous school for so long, and I wanted those students to have access to it as well. Um, But it's been neat to see that other students that I don't even know have accessed them. For the most part, what I'm trying to capture there is what I do during the school year. So they're used to seeing 
that teary face. They're used to doing deep breathing with me. They're used to talking about some of those topics with me. And so again, my whole purpose for that was to create normalcy for them and for them to see a familiar face, hear a familiar voice in the exact same way they would in their classrooms. Of course, the lessons I think are important, but that's really not the main thing behind it. I just want them to know that I'm still here. I'm still doing the same thing I always do. And when we come back in the fall, I'll still be there too for them. So so yeah, it's been fun. I get those and yes, how, how students get those. I put it on YouTube also purposefully because students have more access to that. It doesn't require a login. I didn't have to create my own thing. I do have a website that I link them to, but I didn't want that to be the only thing. I just think, again, I keep hearing how overwhelmed parents are keeping up with everything. So it seemed the easiest um, but I do post those to all of our, all of our teachers have platforms they're using to reach their kids. So those are posted there for them to find them as well. Do you um, have other recommendations, Sarah, about resources that might be good for parents or caregivers and students? Yeah, I created on my website, I created when all this first started, um, I I called it an SEL from home, social emotional learning at home document that I tried to make as easy to read, as easy to access, as easy to click links. California school counselors actually just put together an incredible website I keep giving to parents and giving to other school counselors. Resources Sarah mentioned to help address students' social emotional needs during COVID-19 include her YouTube channel, which is Counselor Kirk, K-I-R-K, her website on Google Sites, also called Counselor Kirk, and the website COVID19K-12Counseling.org, with wellness resources curated by California and Wisconsin school counselors. We're learning from Fund for Teachers fellow Sarah Kirk who used her grant to complete yoga and mindfulness training in Dover, New Hampshire. We're talking with her today on the heels of her interview with NPR's Morning Edition about the pandemic's toll on young students' mental health and well-being. How did you decide to do a Fund for Teachers Fellowship? I have been very interested in yoga and mindfulness for kids for a while. I kind of fell into that as well. I started a yoga club at my previous school, really only because we didn't have any after school clubs and I had kids that were interested. And that diversity at my previous school, we had a lot of kids who went home to not get to do anything and weren't in, you know, on baseball teams or in Girl Scouts or anything like that. They really saw their peers were and they didn't understand that. And so I wanted to create some after school programming. So I did a kindness club and then yoga club interested me. And so I applied for a donors choose grant to get yoga mats. And I did, I got 25 yoga mats and some books. And so I started with 25 kids. And by the next year, it was 75 kids. And by the next year, it was 150 kids. I mean, it was just 
truly growing way more rapidly than I could keep up with. By the time I left that school, I was doing a yoga club every day of the week because I still couldn't do it for that many kids. So they would have a day of the week that they came to. So it just had grown way more than I had ever imagined. But I had no formal training. I mean, I again, I started it because it sounded like a fun after school club with the intentions of 25 kids doing a couple of stretches and learning some deep breathing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I realized I was a little in over my head. And so... So yeah, I had um, the school I was at previously had a couple of music teachers who had benefited um, greatly from Fun for Teacher fellowships. And so they encouraged me to apply and I was lucky enough to be a recipient and it was really fantastic. It really solidified and gave me so many more ideas of what I'm doing. And I'm really grateful that it, the timing of it because it was this past summer And in the meantime, I switched schools. But this new school, I've really been able to integrate it into everything that I do. I love now that it's really a part of my counseling program. It's not just an after-school activity for some kids. It's something that everyone's getting. I do school-wide assemblies, teaching some of the techniques. I can really confidently say that all of the kids get it now. And so, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I'm going to ask you one more question. One of the things that you talk about a lot is trauma-informed practices Mm -hmm. and that those should be integral parts of all schools. Tell me what that looks like and why that's important. I've talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks too, because while I've always been passionate about trauma-informed schools and using trauma-informed practices, I think it's more important than ever because even if you are in a school that you don't think your kids have experienced trauma. First of all, they probably have. But second of all, if they hadn't previously, most likely this experience as some sort of a trauma for them for one reason or another. My summary of it would be that when we're trauma-informed, it doesn't matter if We know if the student has been impacted by trauma. It doesn't matter if we know what those traumas are, because often we won't, but that we create an environment for all students that really emphasizes safety, that really emphasizes community building, and that puts the strongest emphasis on relationship with kids. One thing I keep saying is that while this has been such a tough time for everyone, and everyone is so anxious to get back, no hopefully when we return, hopefully in August. Um, But whenever our return date is, I really hope that teachers and educators and parents and students too can spend this time realizing what really works, but also leaving behind the things that didn't. Like when I was saying those trauma-informed practices and putting relationship at the heart of all we do, I think educators are realizing that. It was tough to get them on the band wagon, I jokingly say, I don't hear a lot of teachers saying, but when am I going to teach that division lesson? They're not saying that right now. They're saying, I'm worried about my kids. I miss my kids. I love my kids. You know, they're, they're realizing what matters most. But when you're an educator and you're so wrapped up in that division lesson, that's all you can think about. And um, so I'm hopeful that this time will really allow educators to really see what's most important in our work and bring that back and make that the main focus, then the division can come. I still, I understand that's still important, but refocusing on what is the most important could be so beneficial in all of our schools. I think I do too. Seeing the relationship 
if not over the rigor, but at least on an equal plane. Right. And first, and then the, uh, then the rigor can come. You know, I don't, again, I never say we shouldn't be teaching in school. Obviously, that's our whole job. But I think if we would realize how much easier it can come, we wouldn't have all the behavior issues and all the difficulties if the relationship was built first. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from almost 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, Sarah Kirk, for making the time to visit with us about the toll COVID-19 is taking on students, families, and school communities. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Counselor underscore Kirk. Listen to the NPR piece in which Sarah is interviewed by searching the title, Closed Schools Are Creating More Trauma for Students. Also look for her article in Forbes magazine titled, This is What a School Counselor Does. I'm Carrie Cajun. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.